Go. Now, normally when we watch Game of Thrones, we watch the episode several times to prepare. We did that this time as well. It was harder because I didn't really want to watch it again as much as I normally do. But after a little reflection and this thinking about it a bit, the second time through, I found a lot more to like and just sighed at the bad parts, kind of just let them flow by. I didn't rewatch the final scene past the wedding itself. So that's a, that's a theme for us book readers today. Something we'll be making a, a theme in general for in this review. How seeing things on the screen can have a much bigger impact than reading them on the page. Because objectively, we've all read and really seen worse things, but we've had less emotional investment in them. That's a, and that's an interesting topic in and of itself. It says a lot about being human and the way we process things from a sensory perspective. Now here at History of Westeros, we love to chat about human psychology, but that's usually from a perspective of analyzing book characters, not real people, not ourselves. So that's a bit of a, a change. Today we're going to do both, as one of the most interesting things about this episode is our own reaction to it. So hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Today's episode is focused on the television show, but we will be relating and comparing the two, as we always do, and thus this, spoiler, this episode does have spoilers mm -hmm. for all of the books. If you're looking for a discussion on the show without any spoilers from the book, no comparisons to the book, you want to check out our show-only episodes with Sean. Right on. Now, welcome back to the discussion, Yoke Boy from Radio Westeros. Unfortunately, Lady Gwyn couldn't be here, but we're glad to have you here today, Yoke Boy. Yeah, really glad to be back to discuss this rather controversial episode today. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so, any, some, I know some of you listen to both our, or watch both of our show review and this episode of Book to Show. So you may have heard me already say that it's hard to be emotional and analytical at the same time. That is part of why we took a little longer to put this episode out and have a little more time to reflect, let people think about it more, let people calm down a bit. Not that there wasn't a reason to be upset, but again, it is hard to be emotional and analytical at the same time. And we're, we pride ourselves on being heavily analytical, so we want to make sure we do the things that we do best by whatever, any means possible. So in the same, for the same reasons we've avoided a lot of the social media outcry, I've been, we've been a witness to it, but we haven't engaged in it so much because, well, I don't like disharmony. I don't like disharmony in the fandom. This is supposed to be fun. I see lots of people debating about the definition of rape and debating about what things that I don't think are necessarily that important. I think we can all agree that Sansa didn't want to be in that spot. And we all should be having fun with this. That's the point of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's the point of fandom in general. I'm not telling anyone how to enjoy or how to indulge in the material that they spend their time with, but I just think that's a good thing to keep in mind, is that we're supposed to have fun. We should be united in a fandom like a fist, right? Yoke Boy, that's, that was, you, you gave me that idea. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It is a difficult time in the fandom with... It's hard to see people kind of hating on each other and, you know, the inevitable arguments and stuff, but it can only go so far. And we, we, well, I like a united fandom. That's what I meant by we should all be one fist. Right on. So with that in mind, we're going to go extra deep with book parallels today. We're going to look really hard at some of the books we've got. We picked out extra quotes. We're going to turn the other cheek. We're still going to talk about everything that needs to be talked about. 
but we're going to, as usual, focus on the good, criticize where we need to, but keep in mind that we're supposed to be having a lot of fun here. So we'll start with Arya and the House of Black and White. As usual, we're going to ha incorporate lots of watchinger feedback. We got great questions and predictions and comments from you guys in between this episode and the last, and we've even brought forward some questions that were asked a couple weeks ago because they weren't appropriate to answer until certain plot lines reappeared on the show. So that'll be at the end of the episode. We'll also be covering the trailer for the next episode, but that will be after the credits, so you can stay tuned for that after the credits, or you can cut out a little early and not get spoiled on that particular conversation. So one of my first observations with this scene about Arya in the House of Black and White is that this, this musical motif keeps re uh, re returning, and it really is great for adding to the creepiness of this scene, or of these scenes, rather, the House of Black and White. All these goes fits with this very dark atmosphere that we're seeing here now we are we're seeing the waif again and we have the great conversation between her and Arya, where Arya starts to smile at the notion of revenge but then there's this great twist where she challenges her and says hey we're you know did you actually believe all that were you listening were you were you actually just taking all that in and accepting it without considering that i might not be telling the truth and the way the music changed during that moment was really well done. But the more intense version of a similar concept was when Jake and, and her play the lying game. Especially the moment with the Hound, where she's confronted about her own feelings on that. Yeah, Arya seems really genuinely convinced that she wanted the Hound dead. But she obviously didn't from Jacken's reaction. And this kind of reflects something on the books that's uh, quite, quite similar when Arya refuses to give Sandor the gift in the Riverlands, we can't be sure as readers if she wants him to suffer more or if she simply has gained enough sympathy with him not to want to kill him. And perhaps the answer is that it's a bit of both. Uh, I actually think that Arya had some cognitive dissonance about the issue there. And here in the show, we see evidence of that confusion within Arya as she doesn't seem to realise that she's lying, perhaps to herself and Jacken, about wanting the Hound dead. And then there's, then there's the other scene, Aya starts to lie, that, that's when something changes in Aya. She, she gets it now, she's playing the game, and she starts to lie to the ill girl who's uh, you know, waiting for a death, whether she knows it or not. And we see Jacken watching and he seems, you know, impressed that she's perhaps learnt this lying lesson. And that scene really shows that there can be mercy in euthanasia, which is obviously a real world, very hot moral topic debated by philosophers the world over. And in this instance, we can see the desperate need of a father to end the suffering of the child that he clearly loves. Uh, given the faceless men are assassins, this is a further play on the dual nature uh, of death that we talked about. It can be, uh, you know, a gift or a punishment, can't it? Yeah, that's a really great point about, especially about euthanasia, I thought. Um, the other thing I noticed about this, um, kind of a difference between the books and the show, was that Arya, this Arya in the show seems rather impatient, um, at, least, at least to me. I agree. In the book, she's eager and confident and she still thinks of revenge but she's not really in a big hurry and she's certainly at no point threatens to quit 
it's it's more the opposite. She makes this. She has this great line about you need to be the one of the priests tells her she needs to be humble, and she says, "I'll be more humble than anyone," which of course is you know hilarious. <laughs> so, it, but in the but there are some very deep similarities despite that, which is not a big change. It, the way she tries to lie is a bit similar uh, from book to show, though it's more internal in the book as she realizes pretty quickly that he's too good and he's going to know if she lies, especially because in that moment when they're playing this game, she is thinking of her kill list, which is the, one of the most Aria things that is about her. One of the, you know, one of the things that the faceless men particularly would want her to give up on in the ugly little girl chapter. She's serving what seems to be a faceless men gathering. There's 11 of them, and she remarks that it's the most she's ever seen at one time. One of them speaks with her, and let's note the similarities between this dialogue and the scene on HBO as we go through this book scene here. Who are you, plague-faced, asked when they were alone? No one. Not so. You are Arya of House Stark, who bites her lip and cannot tell a lie. I was. I'm not now. Why are you here, liar? To serve. To learn. To change my face. First, change your heart. The gift of the many-faced god is not a child's plaything. You would kill for your own purposes, for your own pleasures. Do you deny it? She bit her lip. I... He slapped her. The blow left her cheek stinging, but she knew that she had earned it. Thank you. Enough slaps, and she might stop chewing on her lip. Arya did that, not the night wolf. I do deny it. You lie. I can see the truth in your eyes. You have the eyes of a wolf and a taste for blood. So... Very similar there, except for the main differences is that she is trying to lie about fewer things and she doesn't try to quit. And of course, she thanks him for yeah. <laughs> for being hit instead of getting petulant. But very similar other than that. There, the differences are, are not major. So I, I think that the book, the show actually captured some of those nuances pretty well. And I didn't notice quite as, quite as much of that until we, we took a closer look at the book scenes. And of course, one of the other major uh, sequen, part of the sequence of Arya's scenes in this episode, Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken, was this room of many faces. So of course, we did some digging in the book as well to see how the comparisons are there, look for similarities and differences. Now, I think we're used to the idea that Game of Thrones does some things really well and some things kind of poorly, and sometimes those things happen at the same time, like, like in this scene. On one hand, it was creepy and cool, but it was also a little overdone. Like it was, I, like to, I like to say it's a lot like the, one of those dwarven halls from the Lord of the Rings movies, these huge underground caverns that you're wondering, how the hell did this, where did this come from? This is, where's the space for this? It's like, really, the, the house of black and white, is, this is all, where is this? I mean, there's this pool. It's down wall, in the basement. A, huh? Yeah, there's like a lake or like the lagoon right outside. So all this yeah. is like underwater, I guess. Yeah, I don't they know. have giant ladders, you know. <laughs> yeah, they have to have giant ladders to reach those fa face ladders, of course. They have to have people, like, who goes in there and lights and deals with all the candles, too, because <laughs> not just anyone's allowed in there. Yeah, they must have a really Harrenhal-sized bill for torches and candles. And, and yeah, you're, you're right. Who was doing all that work? I don't know. <laughs> so, Yuck Boy, you had some thoughts on that as well. You brought out a, a couple of quotes here. Yeah, just in the books, like you say, in the, the TV show, it was... On an epic scale, it's it, the size really isn't described, but you can tell from the descriptions that it's, it's smaller. It seems to be a small room behind an iron door that does have some kind of tunnels described. But here's a quote anyway. 
The kindly man lifted his lantern and flicked its shutters wide open. Light washed over the walls around them. A thousand faces were gazing down on her. They hung upon the walls before her and behind her, high and low, everywhere she looked, everywhere she turned. And then there's a really long list of all the different kind of faces, and it includes babies, old people, young people, you know, everyone. There's a really big list. And then it gets to the line, masks, she told herself. It's only masks. But even as she thought the thought, she knew it wasn't so. They were skins. And again, the music was amazing here. The, it really added to the scene. And the dialogue was good as well. I had a question. Do we ever, are we ever going to see a faceless man as a baby? <laughs> <laughs> a faceless baby. That is yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, I, I wonder why they have the baby faces. I, yeah, anyways, <laughs> I guess it's possible. Watch out. If there are actual baby assassins out there. <laughs> I would love to see a baby hit, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, isn't he cute? Oh, oh, oh. Well, that, that's, that's why Gilly's baby's still in the swaddling clothes in the show. Oh. Why it hasn't grown at all in like, this many seasons. Just, you know, They're keeping, her, keeping him under wraps so he doesn't go out killing. <laughs> He's a dangerous kid. So then we have this line... You are not ready to be no one, but you may be ready to be someone else. Yeah, given Arya has taken on numerous identities already, like, she started off with being a boy, didn't she, in the show? And yeah. her remember her made-up backstory with Tywin, which was kind of reminiscent of The Lion Game. We see how suitable Arya is at being a, a faceless man, which is something we've touched on in other episodes, too. And perhaps, who knows, perhaps why Jacken chose her in the first place. But yeah, coming back to this line, Jacken does say that while she's not ready to be no one just yet, she is actually ready to be someone else, which to me brings about an interesting question for both TV and the books. When Aya changes her face in the books, she needs one of these skin masks. However, when we see Jacken change his face, it just doesn't seem like he needs a mask at all. He kind of waves, waves his face and it's done. So, does becoming no one involve giving up your original face forever? Is this what's required if you're never going to need one of these masks again? And then you can just change your face at will. Is this like the final hurdle of becoming no one? that you can never go back to being you again and never have your original face. It certainly fits the name Faceless Men, although she's a woman, but <laughs> the play on words there. No, but yeah, it really does seem like it could be heading that way. And I, I've, I, we've wondered for sure about that very interesting logistical difference there, how Jaken doesn't need any sort of artifice, it seems, whereas she has to wear this face. Let's look a little bit more about this process, too. We, we dug a little deeper into Arya putting the face on. First of all, they cut her on, apparently on the forehead. She describes it as a quick slash. doesn't actually say where, but it's, it says the blood is kind of running down her, her face and cheeks. So guessing it was on her forehead, although it could have been all the way around, potentially. Then came a tug and a soft rustling as the new face was pulled down over the old. The leather scraped across her brow, dry and stiff, but as her blood soaked into it, it softened and turned supple. Her cheeks grew warm, flushed. She could feel her heart fluttering beneath her breast, and for one long moment she could not catch her breath. 
Hands closed around her throat, hard as stone, choking her. Her own hand shot up to claw at the arms of her attacker, but there was no one there. A terrible sense of fear filled her, and she heard a noise, a hideous crunching noise, accompanied by blinding pain. A face floated in front of her, fat, bearded, brutal, his mouth twisted with rage. She heard the priest say, breathe, child, breathe out the fear, shake off the shadows. He is dead, she is dead, her pain is gone, breathe. Shortly after she recovers from this embedded feeling in her new face, she says, my face is still the same. Is it? Are you certain? Was she certain? She had not felt any change, but maybe it was not something you could feel. She swept a hand down across her face from top to bottom, as she had seen once Jake and Hagar do back at Hall. When he did it, his whole face had rippled and changed. When she did it, nothing happened. It feels the same. To you, said the priest. It does not look the same. To other eyes, your nose and jaw are broken, said the wave. One side of your face is caved in where your cheekbones shattered and half your teeth are missing. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's the fact that these memories and pain is contained in the face. And I guess it speaks to the strong supernatural element that's happening here. And it's a really, a really great mystery from the books. I can't wait to see what gets explored, if we learn more about it through the show, or if the show is going to do it differently. Very cool thing that we have coming. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about how this is going to be done. We talked about Macy Williams and the the... The logistics of this, as far as a TV show, uh, it's kind of interesting. We haven't heard anything about her being recast, and that seems to be kind of a crazy idea because Maisie Williams is so popular and she's so good. But the question is still begging to be answered. She's going to have a different face or several different faces. How how are they going to handle this? Yeah, see, originally I thought there was a chance that we would actually see someone else in that role for a while. But we've seen photos of her in her Cat of the Canals outfit on the cover of Entertainment Weekly. So clearly it is her in this role. So maybe it'll be a case of we've seen the devi this device in other TV shows and movies. When you look someone you, on the screen, they look like themselves. But when they look in their reflection or in, a, in water or something like that, it's a completely different face. I'm guessing that's what's going to happen with Arya, but yeah. it's hard to say. What do you think, Yokoi? Yeah, part of me wants a new actress for every face, I must admit. But the more I've thought about it, you know, one day I uh, might have to wear a single face for a really long time. For example, if she goes to Westeros with a different face. So we'd lose Maisie for that whole time, which I don't think any of us want to see that. So I really see why they might go with Maisie, like you say, with an altered reflection idea. Yeah. So it's interesting because a lot of the plot lines have started to really move forward and big things are really starting to happen or be, are building up, coming down to a, what is typically um, an exciting, fast-moving end to the season. That's a typical pattern. But uh, Arya is maybe a little harder to predict. We, we were certainly expecting confrontation with Marin Trant. But after that... I don't know if that's how her season's going to end or if there'll be something that we get to see, like a tease for next season. Hard to say. Lots of possibilities. I'm pretty looking forward to it. I've been pretty, this is certainly one of the plot lines I've been more pleased with this season. So I'm, I'm definitely optimistic about what's coming. So let's, get a, let's go ahead and move on to the next plot line. But first, another reminder that A Hymn for Spring, Tower of the Hand's latest publication, features Ashea and myself with an essay on Hall and the curse and how it's perceived. A lot of history in there, as well as 
a lot of other authors with great essays. You can pick that up through historyofwesteros.com. Uh, sidebar on the right, there's a link for him for spring. Check it out. We'll be doing an episode on it eventually and possibly having some of the other authors on to talk about some of the content. So let's talk about Jorah and Tyrion. This is a really, really well done set of scenes, I thought, especially the dialogue and acting. It's a good character pairing. Even though this character pairing exists in the books, it's handled a lot differently, and the dialogue is much different, partly because there's no Penny or Makoro or any of these other people, really. Yeah. And so it's really focused on Jorah and Tyrion, and there's a lot they have to talk about. The background between the two of them is really good. We're, we're glad to see Gior Mormont get mentioned, Tyrion killing his own father, that story, Jorah's great speech about, having, about life having a purpose. I thought that was really excellent. Um, it had a different impact, um, book to screen, basically the difference when seeing versus hearing, it really comes out on that. It, we all kind of knew what Jorah's background is, but having him explain it this way, it really felt differently, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. This scene, I, I've never liked Jorah Mormont more. I'm a notorious Jorah Mormont hater, I guess. <laughs> I, he creeps me out, I'm not a fan, but this really humanized him to me in a way that the books never quite did. Yeah, it did, did humanise him. And uh, what I was thinking when he was hearing about his father, how does he feel guilty about Jor? Remember that Longclaw is given to John, which really should have been Jorah's, and that's, you know, an ancient family heirloom. Jorah brought disgrace onto his family, and that's, that's not over yet, you know. He's still in exile so that's what I was wondering. There's a lot of issues under the surface for Jorah that hopefully will get more kind of emotion and backstory. I guess the biggest issue under the surface for Jorah is his grayscale, huh? <laughs> <laughs> more on that in a minute. First, we have the, the slavers. We, we all predicted that this is how be, we, it would be how it goes. We knew they'd get captured by slavers, or at least we were very confident in that guess. I wouldn't say we were making a great guess there. I think I think a lot of us probably saw it coming going this way, and it did indeed. Uh, we get to see Malco, who is, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce his real name. He does have the same initials as me, AAA, so that's pretty cool. Can I ask you as historian something? Sure. Is a cock, is a cock merchant a real world thing? <laughs> <laughs> Powdered human horn. Was there such thing? <laughs> Powdered human horn. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I would not like to discuss how much work I've put into researching cock merchants, actually. <laughs> I, I would that's prefer what, to keep that quiet. That's what Ramsey should have done with Theon's <laughs> cock instead of... Yeah, he just wasted all that money. Yeah, what a, but, what a total waste. Great, he, Dwarf cock is worth a lot, but ironborn cock, ooh. Yeah, yeah. That is seriously... Balon, Balon could still cash it in. <laughs> yeah, if he needs more money to fund the, the war effort, he could probably have three new long ships built with that <laughs> with rams shaped like cocks just like aaron aaron dampere had a had a ram shaped like that before he became D aaron dampere when he was just aaron Greyjoy, the, the drinker so, so let's let's talk more about the grayscale though this yeah is, the big question is will malco the you know the slaver will he get grayscale he punched jorah he touched jorah if there's was there blood from punching him uh, is it going to transfer to him? Is I, I don't know. 
Yeah, it's really, we've been wondering a lot in general about this grayscale issue and how it will play out. And, and it's tough to figure because we thought about the, the possibility of it subbing in for the Pale Mare as in Marine, but we also consider Jorah as a possibility for taking John Connington's place and bringing it to Westeros. We've also considered both of those happening. So it's hard to play out because those are hard to figure out because those are both very good guesses as far as we can tell. Nothing really eliminates either of them. So we've also, so in order to maybe shed a little more light on it, we did like we did with the Arya scenes and we looked back in the books for references, try to find as much as we can on Grayscale and the Stone Men. So here's a little more background. The legendary origin of Grayscale is credited to Rhoynish Prince Garen the Great, who was the war leader that united the, the Rhoynar during their long conflict with the Valyrian Freehold, which of course they lost. And he was forced to watch his people's enslavement. But the prince, it is said, called down a curse upon the conquerors, entreating Mother Rhoyne to avenge her children. And so that very night, the Rhoyne flooded out of season and with greater force than was known in living memory. A thick fog of evil humors fell, and the Valyrian conquerors began to die of grayscale. So we talked about how grayscale clearly has a supernatural element to it. Well, apparently it has a supernatural origin as well. Now, some maesters dispute the this origin story for grayscale but we see the sorrows we see the sorrows we see the stone men we see all these other things i don't know it seems seems supernatural to me we can't obviously can't claim to know for sure that it came from garen the great but i believe it yeah i do too so the first mention of grayscale in the books is shireen and then the next mention of Grayscale is also Shireen, and then the next as well. Eventually, we are, we are, her, we are told of Harlan Greyjoy, who was an elder half-brother to Balon, Euron, Victarion, and Aeron. He was from their father's first wife. No sons of his first wife survived to the current story, even though there were three initially. Tyrion has some more thoughts about Grayscale that really gives us probably the best explanation for how it works in terms of it's a good rundown we'll just call it that stone eyes are blind eyes thought Tyrion. the mortal form of grayscale began in the extremities he knew a tingling in a fingertip a toenail turning black a loss of feeling as the numbness crept into the hand or stole past the foot and end, and up the leg the flesh stiffened and grew cold and the victim's skin took on a grayish hue resembling stone he had heard it said that there were three good cures for grayscale axe and sword and Cleaver, hacking off afflicted parts that sometimes stopped the spread of the disease, Tyrion knew, but not always. Many a man had sacrificed one arm or foot, only to find the other going gray. Once that happened, hope was gone. Blindness was common when the stone reached the face. In the final stages, the curse turned inward to muscles, bones, and inner organs. We also have a very important quote from Val, which refers directly to the, the maesters and their disbelief in some aspects of how grayscale works. The maesters may believe what they wish. Ask a woods witch if you would know the truth. The gray death sleeps, only to wake again. The child is not clean. So if and when Jor Jorah's grayscale is discovered, we may see reactions like this, which John Connington points to. Queer as it seemed, men who would cheerfully face battle and risk death to rescue a companion would abandon that same companion in a heartbeat if he were known to have grayscale. So Jorah could get shunned, in other words. Yeah. Maybe we'll see people try to send him back to Valyria to live with the stone. Uh -huh. 
Now, we got a couple pieces of watching her feedback related to Grayscale here that I think are worth mentioning. Ryan Ezat wonders if, along the lines of the end of Dance with Dragons, will we see stone men <laughs> flung into marine, a la how the pale mare victims were being flung into marine to spread the pale mare. Instead, so, we could see living stone men <laughs> flung. That would be sounds really... more effective. Stone <laughs> yeah, they act. Yeah, they actually start attacking people rather than just you know they spread their disease and their like hor- horrific walking zombie <sighs> things. So I like that idea. It's a little. It seems kind of pardon the pun over the top, but I could see right. it happening. And it would be pretty cool. It would be kind of a neat thing for TV. Uh, David Stead brings up another possibility for Grayscale on the other side of the world. What if there's a Grayscale outbreak among Stannis' men? That would be an interesting way for the show to have to avoid shooting the Battle of Ice and have Stannis get reduced via disease instead. A very interesting possibility. I'm not sure I would call that likely, but I like the idea. It's a very good possibility and especially the way you're thinking about it, considering the po- considering ways for them to avoid having to show big battles because it's so expensive. Now, I wanted to also take a minute to thank uh, Watchers on the Wall for helping us with some of the Valyria location scenes. We had uh, I talked to Sue the Fury about where Valyria was, where these Valyria film- scenes were shot, and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. I don't know where exactly there, but it was there. Um, right on. It, I think we would maybe retweeted it to History of Westeros or something. Yeah, but there was also, apparently there's a combination of green screen and real location. Well, so, yeah, definitely Valyria wasn't just there in Northern Ireland. No, that was a real dragon. <laughs> they found a real dragon and shot him. I hear he's going to appear in the next Jurassic Park movie <laughs> <laughs> wearing a mask. Okay, let's talk about Dorn. Dorn, far to the south, full of sand, the adventures of Cooper and Darnell who discovered that, hey, all you need to do to sneak into the water gardens is put on Dornish-looking clothing. It's as simple as that. That's what the Sand Snakes said, too. They all put on their one outfit as well. <laughs> so I'm going to... I'm easygoing. I tend to look at the good side of things, but this plot line is possibly the worst thing Game of Thrones has done. I don't mean the decision to do it. I just mean the execution. There are other plot lines where I question their choice of, of doing it, but as far as actually putting it into motion and creating it, past the decision of choosing it. This has just not been done very well. I think the mutineers at Crasher's Keep scene was the worst to me. But this was remarkably bad. I just that that was without a doubt the worst, most pointless thing. <laughs> <laughs> I I can't help thinking of Fox Force Five from <laughs> Pulp Fiction, <laughs> which was Quentin Tarantino's idea of a group of female assassins, each with their own speci- speciality which was, you know, purposefully called uh-huh. kind of idea. But um, I guess some people might argue that they got that impression from the books too. But I think what's true is that they just haven't translated well onto screen. It does kind of resemble a parody. Uh, wh- whether that's because they should have never been on screen, it just never, it can't translate. Or whether it's been badly executed is up for discussion, but certainly one of those two. Yeah, it's possibly the worst fight scene that we've seen. There's been some, you know, the fight scenes, a lot of times there's awkwardness. It's hard to do and make realistic looking. <laughs> but really, is Obara isn't much of a fighter if she if she can, if Darnell can hold her off, yeah, good old one hand. Yeah, the, that was 
and say it to me. And then plus her just announcing that she was Obara Sand felt just as awkward to me as when they yelled, unbowed, unbrent, unbroken. <laughs> None of you were Martells. Yeah. And, then, and then also as awkward as her, you know, spears before tears speech in her introduction. It just all just felt so forced and like just weird for her to be saying this at that time. But the other kind of weird thing to me about this was that I don't really understand why Nymeria didn't just kill Marcella right there. That's what they want. They're not they're not trying to crown her as you know which as they were in the book. So why did she need to take her anywhere? She had her just kill her or hurt her or do something. Um what the one positive, the one positive besides the scenery that I have was that I did like Tyene's little hot back up <laughs> and that she has a lot of anger and we're getting a little more of something from them that that was like that's me stretching for some character development there is just that yeah as sean said in our show only review he doesn't understand why he's supposed to care about these characters he doesn't know anything about them they haven't been explained we as book readers at least have some idea of who they are but because they're amalgamated and elaria is so different we we don't even necessarily even have that ourselves even though we have something to lean on and something to say well we can look at the books and look at their characters there most of them aren't even really cast as fighter types in the books. They're, you know, they're all skilled in their own ways, but really, you know, they're, 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 their skills are more varied than that. Yeah, definitely. So I, I did like Hota's line, when you were whole, it would have been a good fight, him and Jamie. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to Hota doing a bit more. We'll see what happens there. Of course, looking for more, forward to more Doran. Yeah, yeah, definitely looking forward to more of him and more of Ario Hota. He was a, definitely such a gravitas to him. That actor. Yeah, he's yeah. big and, and, and deep. <laughs> yeah, to me, though, the fight just it really felt like it would have been the same if there had been only one Sand Snake there. The three of them were pretty ineffectual altogether. Yeah, they were ineffectual, but, of course, we did get that kind of close shot of um, Cooper's arm as he gets <laughs> slashed by Tien's point, uh, dagger. So, so we're wondering, as other people in the fandom are, was there some of kind of the Oberyn trademark poison on those daggers? Yeah, if we were doing a if we were doing a worry of the week type analysis right here, definitely be worried about Bronn. He might have. I'm sorry, Cooper. He may have been poisoned, <laughs> and so far it's not fast acting poison. He seemed fine for a few moments at least. If so, I thought maybe his the reaction is a little weird. If I don't know, Tyene kind of losing her cool when he calls her a little girl. Seems yeah. like she would if she had like, poisoned him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You see who was a little girl when you when your arm falls off there, buddy. So so like I said earlier, this plot as a whole, the idea isn't terrible. The idea of sending Jamie to Dorne to rescue Marcella, that's something I don't see anything terribly wrong with that. Maybe I would have rather seen the Riverlands, but in a vacuum the notion seems solid enough. But again, it's just the execution. It just yeah. seemed kind of real just not good. Yeah, there's a lot that we have to say about this. Uh, the first thing that just struck me right away is that everyone just arrives at the same time. And it just, it's just that and a lot of other things seem really cliche. And in particular, it just seems to me like the Sand Snakes and Ilaria are being portrayed as villains and poor villains at that, at least thus far. Yeah, I'd have to agree. They kind of do make poor villains, don't they? And again, in the book, Ilaria counsels against vengeance and the Sand Snakes... Want to crown Marcella and not kill her. Yeah, Nymeria does want Tommen's death along with Jamie, Cersei, and Tywin, but she doesn't just want to kill this girl that they have, you know, in their, that they have, that they're protecting. So that's, that's not what she wants at all. Um, and 
there was one thing that I was happy about that at least we got some happiness in this episode <laughs> in that, you know, Tristan and Marcella are happy. Although I don't really like the portrayals of these characters. Uh, Tristan to me feels like the showrunners are just trying to cash in on the success of Pedro as Oberyn. <laughs> and it's largely unsuccessful to me, at least. Uh, Tristan seemed kind of silly. I don't know. Maybe there's a lot of women out there that are going crazy for Tristan, <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, I mentioned this in a previous episode, but I love it every time I think about it. It's just that, and I, and it was I seeing Marcella here again. I thought of it more. Just how similar young Cersei and Marcella look. They look very similar to me, and they're yeah. both named Nell, which uh, is great. Good job, casters. Yeah, <laughs> Nina Gold in particular. But mainly, a lot of this stuff is hard for me to to judge fully and and analytically because the, the scenes just remind me of the lack of Arya and Martell. You know, all of the Dorn stuff reminds me of it. And this plotline is just so bad that it makes the Aryan cut even more baffling to me. And I already think it was just a weird decision by the showrunners. Like, living aside that it disappointed me that I liked the character, it's just a weird decision because Arianne Martell is perfect for television. She's perfect for HBO, you know, for HBO, for Game of Thrones. I mean, she's a beautiful heiress who seduces a Kingsguard knight plots to crown a female, and then has her plan horribly fail. And that isn't even touching on like her relationship with Doran and, and a number of other things about her plotline that are also great, but just that alone makes for a really fascinating storyline. Yeah, I agree. Ariane would have looked good on the screen in retrospect, I think. Um, basically, compared to what you've described, you know, Ariane's potential, the show's dis depiction of Dawn is really lacking in depth quite severely. And a lot of the characters are coming off quite cartoonish and shallow. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, one. I think we I think we can. And again, it's at least so far. We we want to be hopeful and I and I remain hopeful that at least at least one of the Sand Snakes will get some character development. You, you'd think that we would get something out of them. They're not just going to... You don't think they're just going to disappear after this season. So may, maybe we'll see some more. It's hard to judge without knowing where it's all going. But one, on the, one thing on the bright side about this whole storyline is that the Dornish scenery is lovely. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I thought it was going to be horribly orange because Game of Thrones does this color grading where, you know, if you notice King's Landing is very orange. So I thought the, the you know, the more southern we get that it would just be oranger and oranger, but it looks great. It's not, it's like green and lush and the water gardens is lovely. That, uh, no complaints there. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, it, another p possibility for how they could have tied in with the books and, and made, made it interesting and made it shocking, which they like to do, but this would be a good shock because it works along the same lines of the books as having something have gone wrong in that melee and have Marcella get wounded along the lines of how she does in the book. And then that creates the compelling, oh, we got to keep this a secret. You know, this is this is yeah. this is going to cause the war that we were trying to avoid. We got to hide this, you know, and, that, and it could have been done as an accident. It yeah, imagine, have to be... imagine if Jamie had accidentally hurt Marcella. Nymeria's pulling Marcella away. She's trying to get away. I, again, I don't know why, Mar why Nymeria doesn't just kill her. But <laughs> Jamie accidentally, you know, hurts her in some way. Maybe not an ear because maybe that's harder to do on television. But that definitely would have shocked me. And I... During this scene, I wasn't worried about really Marcella at all or about any characters. No. I, yeah, I don't... I never... Until the cut on Bronn's arm, I didn't it, didn't... it didn't really feel like anyone was in danger. I'm not like... I didn't... I didn't see Bronn dying to the Sand Snakes there. Not in that way. 
in a melee, not at least not the way that fight was going. <laughs> and certainly yeah. Jamie's not going to die. And I doubt that one of the Sand Snakes is going to die so soon yeah. after being introduced. Although it would at least explain why so little there be, had been so little development for such yeah. a character. <laughs> I, I would have been worried about Marcella, but Nymeria just goes right up to her and takes her away. So clearly they weren't going to kill her in that scene. Yeah. She was safe. One uh, thing that at least the opportunity is there for is now that they're all held together in one place, there's more opportunity for them to interact with Doran, who I think we're all looking forward to seeing more of him on screen and to figuring out, you know, what's going on with him in general. Yeah, I really have no idea what is going to happen with Doran. There's no Quentin, which is a large part of Doran's plan. And so the question is, does Doran have a plot of his own, some deeper plot, or does he truly just want peace? One thing notable is that um, Alexander Siddig um, said in an interview with Hunger TV that he was advised not to familiarize himself with the books, which does point, I mean, that alone could just be that Ariane isn't in it, and that takes a huge, that changes Doran, Ariane and Quentin, that changes his plotline enough that even if he still has a deeper revenge plan, he shouldn't familiarize himself. So we're looking forward to Darnell chatting with Doran. Darnell, yeah. of course, is Jamie. <laughs> but what will they chat about? You know, what will Doran do? Is he just going to let Jamie go? I just, I honestly have no idea. Yeah, if, he, if he's on the peace plan, he definitely doesn't want to execute Jamie. He's already got Marcella as a hostage. He doesn't need Jamie if he's got Marcella. But no one knows that Doran saw Jamie. He's there secretly. I mean, Doran could just get rid of him and Bronn easily. I, I don't think that's Doran's personality. But it's also a risk to just let him go when he came in and they assaulted your heir, your son and heir, and tried to steal his betrothed. I don't think he should just let him go. Yeah, I don't. I agree. He, it's a touchy situation, and it's it's it. We have to have a better handle on what his plans are in order to make a guess of what he'll do with Jamie. So let's think more about his plan and what how it might work out. Of course. For the longest time in the books, people expected there'd be just some sort of Martell, Daenerys Targaryen combination, some sort of alliance, Daenerys possibly landing in Dorne, her army coming to shore there from Essos. Well, thinking along book plot concatenation condens condensation lines, let's mm -hmm. consider the possibility that Doran wants Tristane to marry Daenerys. That would be very interesting. I could see that happening. I could see it going that way. It, it, it's not a perfect plan, but as far as how the TV show works, it seems like it's right down, right up their alley as far as the choice they might make. Watching her, Robert White from Scotland points out that Varys uses this line when speaking to Tyrion early in the season. He says he refers to a group of men that formed this kind of coalition to deal with the fact that Robert Baratheon was a bad king. Well... Varys and Illyrio doesn't really make a group, does it? What if Doran is part of that group? Could definitely happen. In the book, of course, his, he plotted with the Sea Lord and others to have Viserys marry Arianne. Having Tristane marry Danny would fit pretty well. And as much as I really wanted to see Arianne, as much as we all wanted to see Arianne, at least that would take things a step further into explaining why they cut Arianne. Because if they wanted to have Danny marry Tristane, then Arianne, there's not as much for her to do. So that, well, I mean, there's other sure. things you could do. I'm I just saying. That, I think that it makes the cut of Quentin make a lot more sense. I think Arianne and Tristane, did, that, that, that didn't have to be, you know, uh, ex, you know, mutually excuse. Well, I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm just saying it makes more yeah. sense. 
So, yeah, because like you said, it would, it would create a strange succession situation. Yeah, it Tristane would, I, being the heir to Dorne and marrying the queen. Yes, yeah. it's awkward. But the show is. kind of tends to yeah. I mean, look at gloss Loris. over some of those things anyway. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, they aren't concerned about Loris, so, uh, yeah. Even though they brought Loris up in, in, in conversations, you know, Tywin threatened to add him to the Kingsguard, and, yeah. and Olenna had to back down with that threat. <laughs> yeah. So they used it in that sense, but sometimes they avoid it <laughs> when it's convenient, I guess. <laughs> so, like I said, in any case, the whole situation with Jamie leaves Marcella as a hostage one way or the other, and that would also be the case with the Tristane marriage to Danny. Uh, look, consider Doran's political position. All of a sudden, his son is married to Daenerys, and he still has Marcella as a hostage. So... Pretty good, but what will but what will Doran do with the Sand Snakes? Yeah, so far they just seem so unreasonable that it, to me it would be weird for Doran to send them off on their various missions as he does in the books. Maybe they're not as unreasonable as they've seen, but we just just so far they just want to kill Marcella. Whereas in the books it makes sense for Doran to reason with them, um, and it wasn't even their plot in the books that that got Marcella hurt. So uh, I I don't know what to expect. Um, in the books, the fact that Doran sent a bastard daughter to sit on the small council is just one of my favorite parts <laughs> of the Doran's plotline. So obviously, I would like to see Nymeria sent to King, the, to King's Landing. I think that, that that would do a lot to at least get some character development for one of the Sand Snakes. But do we think that Doran will send them on their missions? I think there is a good chance that that is how we learn more about them and how they become more sympathetic and how they just have something else to do. Because like you said, what else can they do now? Sit in prison and just be talked to? That's What would Tyene do, though? I mean, she, she certainly can't go do her septa, you know, spiel that she's doing in the books. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure in what capacity What would Obara do? The only thing, maybe Nymeria could go do that. She's still very different from the books. I Maybe there's some other thing he's going to send them to do. I, some I really... other plan, maybe. I'm very curious to see if we'll even get any answers this season. He'll have them go find Gendry. <laughs> or they'll go kill Balon. Who's <laughs> well, hanging out with Blackfish. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they'll go hang out with Blackfish. <laughs> form a team up, you know, the Sand Snakes and the Blackfish. <laughs> yeah. That'll be on right out. That show will debut right after Cooper and Darnell. It would be great to me if, they, if he sent one of the Sand Snakes to Daenerys. Ooh. As an envoy of some sort. I, I thought in, in the books, I thought it, it was weird that he sent Quentin, period, in the books. I think that he was a poor choice. Um, and there's a lot of other people, like, Oberyn Martell would have been a far better choice. I mean, he, he went to King's Landing, but he, he, had the, he had the ability to make this decision, so... Maybe with maybe we'll still get an envoy to Daenerys. Yeah, maybe I never thought about the possibility of you know thinking of a alternate realities in Game of Thrones, thinking of Oberyn going huh. to to Marine and offering to marry Daenerys. <laughs> yeah, I think he would have been far more successful. <laughs> yeah, he's he's at least uh, um, you know kind of her type. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's a badass. It's intelligent and well spoken and confident. Yeah, yeah, he's and good looking. Yeah, he's he's yeah. got it all. Even Nymeria right. Sand would have been a better choice to send. She's at least skilled with with diplomacy more so than just Quentin Martell. But that that was doomed. <laughs> yeah, Quentin didn't didn't work out so well for for cue cue ball there. <laughs> cue ball, <laughs> <laughs> like fireball. Exactly. <laughs> 
You can shop at Amazon.com through HistoryofWesteros.com and find lots of great Game of Thrones gear. We've been looking at some of the popular sellers, and we'll reemphasize those. The 2016 calendar, we're big fans of that. Lots of great art. Which, again, will have a scene from The Winds of Winter in it. It comes out July 28th or something like that. Yeah, very we're, excited. We're very eager to see that, wondering what that is going to look like. Of course, we already mentioned him for spring. You can get that through Amazon as well. Obviously, A World of Ice and Fire. If you still haven't got your own copy of World of Ice and Fire, do that. Really, <laughs> you should do that. It's a real, it's excellent. The art alone makes it worthwhile. Yeah, you can get it via Audible, too. That's and true. listen to it. That's true. If you don't want to get a hard copy, you can listen to Roy Dotrice talking about it. <laughs> In any case, go to historyofwesteros.com and check out the links on the right side. We've got lots of great Amazon product links. Let us move on to... King's Landing, the place that Olena can smell from five miles away and it doesn't smell good. Mm -hmm. And good lord, Littlefinger, that <laughs> dude just has a teleporter or something. He does. He is, he, that, he's so good at plotting, he's got Father Time fooled. <laughs> he's, I think he's got a twin. <laughs> <laughs> Littlefinger and, and middle finger oh. <laughs> and big finger and their their forgotten fourth brother thumb gold finger gold finger <laughs> yeah. okay that's so gold that's jamie <laughs> that's right jamie yeah jamie is gold finger <laughs> gold fingers now so just like we did with some of the other plots especially the aria ones we are we looked for more parallels we, we're digging deep we're heading we can we know where a lot of these plots Roughly, are heading. You know, we know, we kind of know that Cersei's going to cause her own downfall. We 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 sort of saw Marjorie getting involved and getting thrown in prison. I was a little surprised by that because I hadn't to, up until the last second. There was I wonder how Mar you know I uh -huh. haven't seen any Marjorie has, hasn't done anything wrong yet, oh. but apparently, but they the High Septon very sneakily got her to perjure herself. That was that was very clever. There's no, not going to be no virginity thing. Yeah, I guess not. Um, she's had sex. Clearly, I mean, she's consummated her marriage with Tommen. Yeah, so they can't. Yeah, they can't go that route. And I guess that's fine. They they've they they got rid of that route and they went this route instead. It was it's a, a fine, well handled change, as far as that goes. Now, so we have a few thoughts on how these things will parallel the books. But first, let's talk about Lancel and Littlefinger. I thought that was an interesting exchange there. Littlefinger's line: "Quite a family to abandon." Mm -hmm. Is a, is a funny one coming from him. He's, as a guy who's always wanted to be considered noble and to be worthy of a noble family, I guess he he's probably thinks Lancel is one of the craziest people ever to live. I think that. <laughs> Who would carve that thing in their forehead? Jeez. And we get the line, Fet flesh peddler tossed around a bit. And every time I see Lancel, I'm just wondering, when's his secret knowledge going to come out? When's he going to talk about Cersei? When's that going to come out? It's just a ticking time bomb. It is. Yeah, it's a ticking time bomb. It's just, no, it's coming. Littlefinger, of course, will use his teleporter to get away from the time bomb <laughs> when it goes off. But <laughs> then it'll finally be revealed that he has this alien technology. Littlefinger and Cersei's conversation was very interesting. We have Littlefinger seems to be kind of admonishing Cersei over her way of handling the Tyrell situation. He doesn't say it was a mistake, but he's kind of steering her in that direction. Like, don't you, the Tyrells aren't going to stand for this. Yeah, he's and also he, kind of asking her some pointed questions there as well, you know, about the 
status of the Lannisters. You know, where's Jamie? What about, you know, what about this? What about Kevin? And, you know, to see how weak they are. Yeah, he's trying to... He, that's, that's a good observation. She, he's trying to get her to reveal things without necessarily making it clear what he's interested in. And he's just asking these as matters of policy. These are, these are, I'm doing my due diligence. But really, he's feeling out the situation. And, of course, he's not actually concerned for her. He's not like, oh... No, no. Are you? You're handling this badly, Your Grace. Don't mess with the Tyrells like that. That's not going to go well for you. No, he's looking out for himself, of uh-huh. course, as he always does. Oh, yep, boy, you had some thoughts on what's going on with Littlefinger here. This is this is this is uh, this is something that you've been predicting for a while. Looks like it's it's coming in almost exactly what you said. Yeah, talking about Littlefinger, you know, and his interests. We we have a said on the show that. He's going for Winterfell, and we, you know, we know we can get Sansa as part of the deal too. If the Boltons and Stannis cancel each other out, and he's made Warden of the North, and he brings over the, the, you know, the Vale troops, which have been kept fresh, and he had a big hand in that. Don't forget that they're one of the only troops who are fresh from the War of the Five Kings. He could end up with both Winterfell and Sansa. We know that he loved cats when he was younger. And he must have some serious deep-rooted envy, which I think is what is driving his whole game, in my opinion. So in his mind, you know, getting the Stark home with the nearest thing to the young cat that he loved is a great poetic revenge for him in his, his mind. Whether... He gets his comeuppance. I'm sure he will, but I think he's got more havoc to wreak before, you know, getting this kind of wet dream that I talked about of Sansa and Winterfell. (laughs) (laughs) Watching her, uh, Usainu, I'm very sorry if I got your name wrong there. I I certainly know what it's like to have your name mispronounced by other people. He he suggests the possibility that Littlefinger's arrival in the north with a Vale army is a bit of a parallel to what Varus's plans for Aegon the Sixth was in the books, where he sweeps in as a savior. He saves the north from the Boltons and or Stannis, potentially. From just the fighting. <laughs> yeah, just comes in with this savior army and and paints himself as, as a hero a bit. And that would be his way of getting legitimacy towards, you know, installing himself in Winterfell. Because as we know... As book readers, the idea of an outsider, especially a guy like Littlefinger ruling the North, just doesn't feel right, does it? That seems doesn't seem like that could ever really happen without something strange setting it up. And I guess this could be that. It still seems weird. It does still seem weird. Just yeah. picturing Littlefinger sitting in the yeah. hot Stark high seat, you know, wielding ice. <laughs> and I know yeah, ice yeah, isn't no. around anymore, yeah. but just think about that. It's just... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it just doesn't fit. <laughs> Still, I, that could be what he's thinking, though. It, it doesn't mean it's a. It doesn't mean it won't happen. It doesn't mean it's a bad theory. It just means that it's really hard to picture. For yeah, I mean, we we don't think he'd be great to leave military troops, just like Cersei thought. That's true. That's Cersei's, exactly. Uh, yeah. Sean made that argument. He wanted. He thought Littlefinger would lead troops into battle and go do that. And we were like, that isn't exactly Littlefinger's, you know, style. He's not. He, Sean thought Littlefinger could be on the Iron Throne. Too. So we just we argued about that for a while, and then here we have Cersei saying exactly what we said, <laughs> and him saying exactly what Sean said. It was just funny. So Elena and Marjorie are are planning as well as much as Cersei and Littlefinger are doing their thing. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, they have no doubts that Cersei and is behind their troubles, despite her, <laughs> you know, attempts to cat say, "Oh, I, I didn't, you know, oh, you know. <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do it." Yeah. yeah, I'm very glad that Olena is back on the show. I really love her. And then we, the next scene we have is, of course, you know, Olena and Cersei sitting there together. And I just thought it was so funny that just imagine Cersei's reaction if she knew that she was sitting across from her son's true killer. <laughs> and and her previous scene was sitting across from the helper. Yeah. The, the two people yeah, she, that killed Joffrey yeah. are these people that she has back to back scenes with. I feel like Cersei would reach, she would kill Olena right there. <laughs> Maybe with her, yeah, with her bare, bare hands. hands. I feel like she would. That That's would... one of the few people she could probably kill, too, yeah, with yeah, her bare it's hands. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> so, young boy, you had some more thoughts on Olena and Cersei. Yeah, I've got to say I was surfing around on Reddit and I saw a really good thread by someone called Untitled Movie Review. And he noticed that Cersei's scene with Olena is a quite direct parallel to a Tywin and Tyrion scene from season three. And it's when Tywin's writing letters. Remember, he's got the quill in his hand all that time and he doesn't look up. And Tyrion's kind of sat there. And those letters, by the way, are probably to organise the Red Wedding. Um, here, it's Cersei writing the letters. And Elena's watching without being able to get attention. And the Tyrion-Tywin scene is almost exactly alike. Uh, the the poster made a gif of the two. And they, they're almost like for like, you know, with the f- same framing and furniture and everything. So so this really highlights something that's brought up in the books. In her head at this stage, Cersei thinks that she is a master player, like mm-hmm. her father Tywin. Uh, in, the, in the book, she really thinks she's Tywin's true heir. She should have been born male, you know, because she takes after him so much. And it says in Feast, when Tywin dies... Now there is a hole in the world where a father stood and holes want filling. And she thinks she is the perfect fit for the Tywin-shaped hole. Of course, (laughs) of course the reader is finding this quite hilarious at this point. There's no way that we're believing her. Whatever she thinks (laughs) of an internal monologue, we know she's going a bit crazy in the books at this point, a bit deluded, so it's all very laughable. Um, But this is really underlying Cersei's feeling of invincibility like the kind of what line of the west tywin that she's a master manipulator and very powerful but it's all in the run-up as we know for the, her downfall that's coming up soon and you know the walk of shame and everything so sadly for cersei she's there and she's playing the game thinking she's master but she should have considered who she's playing against because she's really playing a very, very dangerous game. She's got plenty of her own secrets, and she's playing Olena, who is a master player. Yeah, and Olena has also been put in a very desperate situation, because Marjorie and Loras are both in big trouble, so Olena is not going to hesitate to do whatever she has to do. She might take more risks than usual, and she's the risk, whatever risk is going to be essentially worth it, because she's already faced with such a terrible situation so risk adding a bit of risk to an already (laughs) dire situation isn't really a big deal Derek Credle and others 
watchers in in particular have predicted that Littlefinger is going to work with Elena again. So they've already worked together once, and just like they did to poison Joffrey, as we already talked about, to to help bring down Cersei through the Faith, which we we expect Cersei to get brought down by the Faith. We don't exactly know how that's going to come to be, how that's going to come to pass exactly. But it could be Littlefinger and Elena working together. I could definitely see that happening. That is a very good thought. It could do, but I, I, I did think that perhaps Littlefinger would prefer Cersei with power because he can kind of manipulate her a lot easier than anyone else. And of course, Cersei may not need any help with her own downfall, so there's also that. <laughs> but you're right. In the book, specifically, Littlefinger wants Cersei in power because he thrives on chaos and who creates more chaos than Cersei she's like you know 20 years later version of the mad king in a lot of ways so it's she's a chaos machine isn't <laughs> yeah she? she is a chaos engine <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the trial that wasn't a trial that became a trial Loras and Marjorie somehow caught up in it mm-hmm. all of a sudden at the last second as we've already talked about the treatment of Loras in general in this scene was interesting in general in the show yeah, yeah, and the show, yeah, it's kind of disappointing how he's been treated. This is this is a chance for them to do more with him, but he's been just a kind of a caricature of yeah. of the standard stereotypical gay guy. Yeah, in the books, to me, he has just a lot of depth, and he's uh, he's just a, he's a character who happens to be gay. That isn't the central point of him, but here in the show, he's gay. That's the central point of him. You know, he he talks about brooches and 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 fabrics and all these things he's just such a caricature i i I don't know why they thought it was necessary it isn't that common for gay men to be obsessed with fabrics okay (laughs) (laughs) it is it happens but it's not like a defining feature of homosexual men so we don't need that stereotype over and over but then we also have of course the difference in his reaction to Renly's death, which we've talked about before, and how I didn't really think that that came across at all in the show. But then here in the show, here we have them talking about it as if it was it was a featured part of his character, and I don't think that we even saw those things happen really in the, in the book. He was a little I mean, in the show. He was a little stubborn about leaving in advance of the other armies coming. Marjorie had to encourage him, but he wasn't like, yeah, he didn't, we didn't see him in Renly's armor. We didn't get his line about once the candle is that there's just a lot of stuff about his love for Renly we didn't get but they just seem to treat it as if we did yeah I agree now I like the way they set up in advance what was going to out Oliver, which which the the birthmark thing and you I remember we were watching the episode and you just you yelled it out you were like oh the birthmark yeah I just realized it all of a sudden I was like no before they said yeah. it so that was a great catch and all the, the rest of us in the room were like I can't believe like, we didn't oh, realize yeah. it before it was such an obvious thing in retrospect I mean it was it was kind of an awkward scene him looking at Dorne on the birthmark I don't know well we had predicted that Oliver we all predicted that Oliver would be the one to say yeah, it we but did. we didn't know what didn't his proof would be yeah, we thought it would just be his word that or makes something. a lot of sense now though or his the pictures he took with his camera phone because all oh yeah well if peter if Littlefinger can have a time machine it's nothing for someone to have a camera phone but all of our something's a little off about the scene not in a, in a i don't mean like they did something wrong but something's unusual about all of our being he's so smug it's like gotcha but who i don't know who he made his deal with if he made his deal with the faith well dude they're not gonna let you off for you know, they think this is, you know, they think buggery is this big crime. So apparently they're going to get you for it, too. And if we made a deal with Cersei, well, Cersei's not going to be able to protect Oliver from the faith. So 
I suspect he's going to have awful things happen to him. He might be, like, blue-barred or oh, yeah. something along those lines. He gets tortured. Probably not by Kyburn. I don't see how he'd end up with Kyburn, but... Yeah, that's true. He could end up being treated like Osney Kettleblack was, hung upside down and whipped and all these things. Yes, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully we don't get too much, too much gratuitous torture. But uh, at first in the scene I was frustrated that Loras didn't, you know, say that he was my squire. As you just said, he helped me dress when I was injured or something, and that's why he saw it. But then, you know, I took a second and I realized that Loras is a hothead, for one. He wasn't expecting to see Oliver in the, you know, at all. And this is a huge betrayal. This was, his, this was, you know, one of his lovers. So I understand his reaction. He just gets so mad immediately. He does, and that just gives him away. There's no point in, you know, I, he, he could still argue it later because, you know, a lot of people have probably seen Loris's birthmark. I mean, Loris is a noble who has people draw his baths. So I feel like all you need is some people to have seen it, and then you just say, oh, well, Oliver found out from my maid. That... Like you, yeah. Like you said, if, if, if Loris wasn't a hothead, he might yeah. have been able to play it off that way, but he just instead just attacked. Yeah. I, one really great nuance of this scene was when Oliver is brought in the room, of course, Loris's reaction is he he's, he's makes a, kind of makes a face, he, he has a reaction, but uh, Olena turns to look at Loris to see what his reaction is mm. going to be. So she <laughs> immediately knows that this is bad because of her grandson's reaction. Nice little touch there. I liked it, your interpretation of it. I, th I, When I first saw it, I thought of it as her looking at him like, Really, Loris? Really? Come on. <laughs> like she knew that, that she knew as soon as they brought him in that this was legit. <laughs> but like, I like that one is like, yeah, well, he is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so wh where is this headed? I, it's it's interesting. They have a couple of possibilities here. Loris could be, you know, just tortured and executed. He could, but he could also have a trial by combat. Now, who who would he fight? A couple different possibilities. Of course, we're all expecting Robert Strong to show up in, in a trial by combat at some point. Not necessarily versus Loris. I see like a set of three possible people who could be fighting in a trial by combat. It's just a matter of which pairing out of those three will happen. I could see Lancel fighting Loris in some sort of trial by combat. Lancel's the one who arrested him. Maybe that's a bit of a foreshadowing. I could see Lancel fighting Sir Robert Strong as is a possibility for the book. I could see Robert Strong fighting Loris. I could see Robert Strong fighting Lancel and then fighting Loris. All, I think all these things are legitimately possible. Yoke Boy, what do you think? Is there any any different any thoughts on the, the different possibilities for trials by combat or just regular trials? It's it's a big it's kind of a mess. I think they're all it's hard to pick one possibility out of the others. Yeah, it, it is. I would say with HBO, they would want on the spectacle of a some trial by combat action. I, I'm all for. Sir Robert versus Lancel, <laughs> just because <laughs> it'd be just such a great thing to see those two, uh, uh, you know, a supercharged mountain versus Lancel. <laughs> I don't think that cross in his head's going to help him out, but uh, I, I think that that could be the case in the TV show and possibly in the books too. And the way this could all involve Cersei too, because we're expecting Cersei's downfall at some point and how it's going to happen. It could be that Lancel is the one that says, hey, I slept with her. Cersei would deny it. You know, then maybe they end up, that that ends up being a trial. Yeah. So that's how Lancel fights Sir Robert, because Cersei denies it, and that's her champion. He would have to be in the Kingsguard by then, which would mean maybe Maritrant is dead by then, or... You know they've got these five random Kingsguard who are unnamed, so any of them could just die. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't think that the, I don't think it'll be this season. 
the the trial by combat. Well, I don't think Cersei's will be this season because if you think about the fact that Marin Tran has to die, they have to reappoint it. We're coming towards the end. Let's say her walk of shame is towards the end of the season. That that means it'll be next season. Mm. Yeah, you're probably right. I don't know if they'll care about Merrin dying. I don't. I don't know if they'll they'll count that as a rule. Yeah, I, maybe there's just an extra slot in the Kingsguard already that we don't know about. We've seen some Kingsguard knights, but I don't know that we've seen six others. I think we've well five others because Jamie be the other one. Oh, of course, yeah. I think we've seen five. But I don't think they've established any rules, have they? So they can they can do what they want. They've got kind of minor Kingsguard characters. Who we yeah, don't it's true. I think are. we might have had all five of them with Tommen and Tommen when he went to the Sept, but it might have only been four. Yeah, it's close. Sure. It's all that's all it needs is to have one less. Yeah. But that's a, we've a lot of watchers have asked about the Kingsguard as well and and how that's gonna play out and we've been keeping our eye on it, but considering there's these five unnamed or four unnamed people, that makes it kind of hard to guess at. Other than the likelihood of Marin dying, that being a slot opened up. That, I think, is a fairly safe prediction that is likely to be to be true. Yeah. Okay, let us move on. It is time for the North. Let's go to Winterfell. We have the bath scene. Sansa showing defiance to Miranda. She basically figures, unravels Miranda's, um, where she's coming from, figures out that she's in, that Sansa was, that Miranda's in love with Ramsay. Handled that situation pretty well. That, since that was early in the episode, it was kind of a cool moment. We were, you know, it's something we've all been waiting for Sansa to, to take more control, to gain more agency. I guess we'll have to be waiting a little longer for that. <laughs> this is a case for someone declaring who they are was not awkward or forced at all. Yeah. Unlike Obara saying, I'm Obara Sam. This was totally natural and great and powerful. So it shows it's just that it doesn't. Ha- it didn't have to have been an awkward scene there. Yeah, that's true. I'm not. It's, there's some difference between it. Now, one thing that we we've all been expecting is for, like we said, for Sansa to stop being a victim and for being able to start taking more charge. And as we'll talk about a bit later, maybe there may be some indication that that's still coming. But in the meantime, I'd like to think more about how it might happen. And whether she's going to escape or whether she's going to take back her home through other means and hold on to it. Because that, that's been made a big deal out of a bit. She's talked about how this is her home twice now. She brings that up at dinner. She says, this is my home. It's the people who are strange. And then she says the same thing to Miranda says, this is my home, you can't scare me. It's like she's drawing strength from the fact that she's at home. And so I feel like they're dropping hints that she's going to fight for her home and be able to hang on to it. I hope that's how it goes. It may involve her having to flee and then come back with help because she's obviously not going to go around killing a bunch of people by herself, but she Mm -hmm. might be able to rally the North or become a really good leader, and that would be great. What about, so Yukwa, you had some thoughts on... What could ha- if it go if we go the escape route? What might happen? Yeah, there's there's two there's two routes that, like you say, she either empowers herself somehow, or she escapes and comes back with with help or something. If she escapes, I was thinking there's a possibility that uh, Ren could play the role of Maud's Umber, who is outside Winterfell banging a drum. Um, I've seen a few other people think this too, and most notably, I want to give a shout out to my friend, Brendan Beefish, who has posted the idea on Reddit, but actually written out properly. It's a good idea, I think. Right on. Uh, yeah, so Moore's was outside Winterfell, and what, what he did, he, he had a couple of kids with him, and they, they made a hell of a racket, created paranoia, and in their own way, really affected 
forced the hand of, of the Boltons, so which in turn helped Stannis's cause. So perhaps Bren can provide that role and also when when Sansa uh, sorry when Fekaya in the books escaped with Theon it, it was Moors that got to her first which is very important perhaps Bren could play the same role and Shay you had a, an observation that a lot of us wouldn't have been able to make because we probably don't know how this works but I just it was just weird to me that they just Sansa just washes her hair and her dark hair dye just washes out. This isn't like pink hair dye that maybe would wash out more quickly. This is dark, like black hair dye. And I just have to tell myself that dye works differently in Game of Thrones. In the show, it just works differently or that they have some special solution that they that they wash her hair with to get it out. Because we see characters in the books with dyed hair and they don't have to just keep reapplying it every time they bathe or get their hair wet. So, just a weird thing I noticed. Yeah, they do. They, they, I think they expect people not to really be able to tell. Uh, oh, half their audience are women, probably would notice. Yeah, you know. that's yeah, that's a flaw on their part for not making that realization. Yeah, <laughs> they, they should, don't they have any female that. writers. Nah, huh? yeah, that's part of but, it, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a super minor plot hole compared to <laughs> other things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but let's talk about the wedding itself. We have Theon and Sansa both, you know, dressed up very nicely. <laughs> How about, you had some thoughts on this, Yoke Boy? Yeah, from the books, really. I had a look at the passage, and they kind of dress up Theon to be, you know, Theon again kind of thing. And he is, Theon never loses. You know, he's quite an astute guy, and he knows straight away they're using him to further legitimise the marriage. Because... He is a Greyjoy. Uh, here's a passage. They are using me to cloak their deception, putting mine own face on their lie. That was why Roose Bolton had clothed him as a lord again, to play his part in this mummer's farce. Once that was done, once their false ire had been wedded and bedded, Bolton would have no more use for Theon Turncloak. Now, also, this wedding, I was surprised to see that the wedding was at night on the TV show. And looked back in the books, sure enough, it's at night in the books, too. Had not caught that. I thought it's kind of an odd thing to me, actually, because it's so cold already, during even during the day there. Yeah. I go out at night. I've got, I've got the quote, actually. It says, up above the treetops, a crescent moon was floating in a dark sky, half obscured by mist like an eye peering through a veil of silks. So they did kind of capture that, didn't they? Yeah. It was spooky. The wedding ceremony itself is very similar to the book. The Prince of Winterfell chapter is where this scene occurs, including it includes the mist. The ceremonial words are perhaps identical. I think they're not quite identical, but very close. Yeah, in the books, uh, Theon also thinks that Arya should out herself, you know. He's really thinking, go on, girl, just say no, say who you really are. Call out your real name. But then he realises that if she did that, it would mean death not only for her, but for him. So he's really unsure then if he, you know, he wants that to happen. But one thought is now that now that Sansa has married Ramsay, this really sets up John stabbing, right? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? There's the the combination of events leading to... John stabbing. All the things are are in line now. We have the the tension at the wall. We have Ollie's build up, and we have the situation developing at Winterfell. 
Watching her, Simon Donnelly wonders why there weren't more witnesses at the wedding. There was, there's Walda and Miranda and a couple of others. That's a good question. I, I hadn't... haven't really seen a lot of other Northerners. Yeah. It's not the same situation as the books with uh, all these people there. There were a lot of people there at the books. All these, wit a ton of witnesses, a ton of different Northern Lords were invited to the wedding. Manderley and the Lady Dustin and quite a few others. Yeah, it kind of makes the, it gives it a different, just a really different feel in the show to me. Yeah. And the, then the, all the plotting and, and other all these other powers at play. That might have been why it felt so, the it gave the mood of the scene the way it was, the way it felt so empty. Not empty in a bad way, just empty like, oh, there's so few people there, it's barren. Yeah, and remember with it being a fake Arya in the books, it, it gives it a, a, t a real different dynamic, you know, the reason for them yeah. getting people in to watch and uh, Theon being like, what? She's got different color eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Along those same lines, watching her Anthony Gonzalez wonders at whether Bran was viewing the wedding through the heart tree as he almost really was in the book. You gotta think that if he saw, if he spoke in the books for fake Arya, he'd say something for his real Sansa. <laughs> yeah. That he recognizes. But that. of course, there is no Bran this season, so maybe maybe there'll be a little He's flashback of that. that or something. It's so easy just to have a, a Bran, just, just have, have recorded him saying, like he said, He's already even said Theon in the book, in the show already once, just play that. Yeah, Theon. or at least like a close-up on the werewood face and yeah, some like rustling Bran. sounds or something. Know. I would have liked that, but yeah, that it may be, may, may be hard. That would have been brilliant. That would have been brilliant for kind of hardcore fans, wouldn't it? Just a five-second shot of a weird noise or leaves kind of rustling and a kind of slow shot into the werewood face. Yeah, a little bit of a missed opportunity there. But yeah. other than that, I thought the, the wedding itself was, was pretty cool. Uh, maybe It did feel a little off, but some of the things, as we said, looking them up, they're actually closer to the book than, than we may have thought. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, another good example of the show actually teaching us something about the books, which is really uh, unusual <laughs> and a strange thing to hear myself saying. But I've said it before, which mm -hmm. makes it even stranger that it still feels strange after <laughs> having said it several times. <laughs> So let's talk about the final scene. The, uh, of course, it made a, a lot of people uncomfortable. It's the, the main reason this episode is so divisive, all the arguing. There's a lot of people that have, feel very strongly about it. I certainly have my own feelings. I've expressed a lot of them in the show-only review. I don't really need to rehash it all. I don't think that standing up to Miranda is enough. We wanted more agency. We didn't want just talk. We do it. We did expect something like this coming. It wasn't as I guess in in, in a way it could have been worse. Um, Ashea, you you had some thoughts as well. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say about this. It's just kind of too emotional for me to really want to talk about it at any length or try to justify it in any way. But to me, this is upsetting largely because Game of Thrones has shown itself willing, very willing to change and cut the material from the Song of Ice and Fire. Yet, they seem to continually keep the rape scenes and add more to boot. So why do we need to see this and not the many non-rape-centered -rape plotlines? Why did they plan this since season two? They said that. They said they had this in mind since season two. And I've seen a lot of comments saying that, of course Ramsay did this. What did Sansa expect? And I feel like those comments missed the point that we're viewing this from our perspective and that the showrunners made the decision to not only keep this storyline, but to put Sansa into it and have her marry Ramsay. Which also impacts Littlefinger's storyline, of course, though I'm not quite so concerned with that. They could have changed things at any point during this storyline. And I could name a number of alternatives, many of which, many of which would have been 
infinitely more shocking to me than yet another rape. It was boring. It was expected. It, it was no shock at all. And I'm baffled at the idea that I see repeated that this is good storytelling. To me, to me personally, again, I don't want to invalidate anyone's opinions, but it isn't to me. I didn't enjoy it. I expected it. It was just yet another rape. Yeah. And before anyone comments asking me about this, no, I'm not a fan of the rapes in the series itself in A Song of Ice and Fire either, but those are negligible compared to the story as a whole. A Song of Ice and Fire is huge. So it's a small percentage of the whole story, whereas here it feels like this sexualized violence is a much larger part of the Game of Thrones whole. It feels to me like the show has taken like 60% of the source material, but still kept nearly all of the rape. Yeah, it's a, one way to put it would be it's a, it's a higher concentration. Yeah, there's plenty of rape in the books, but it's, it's never the main thing maybe occasionally it's a it's sort of centralized but it's never it, it's spaced out between so many other things there's lots of things going on on the tv show we've just seen this enough we've seen this so many times it'd be the same thing it's like we would all like who would want to see another extended series of torture scenes i would have a similar reaction I'd be like i i we've seen this it's i don't want to see this and i, don't, I thought we've it already seen it at the time too took up a huge portion of what they had. Like, they just have a smaller portion on television. Yeah. So they should have a smaller portion of rape and torture, etc. So again, it's the criticizing the choice to, to do this, not how it was done. Because Alfie and Sophie and Ewan Rian did a great job. It was a really well done scene. It was just, why did they have to do the scene? That's the complaint. And this is a... We've seen people express similar things. We've seen people argue back and forth on it. And so... It's good for us all to vent. It's good for us all to get our feelings out. And remember, that's what they are. They're feelings. This isn't about right or wrong. This is, this is a TV show. This is entertainment or supposed to be entertainment. But, and that's part of it, too. If it's not entertaining, if it offends people, it doesn't matter if they're right or justified in being offended. It's still like a misread of their audience. If, yeah. you know, that's, that was, it's a mistake. Even if they intended to do it exactly like this, it was a, they misjudged how people would react to it. I think. And people don't need to get... I see a lot of people getting offended and mad at people for getting offended. Yeah. Which I feel like, that, like that's ridiculous to me. Just let people feel. Let people react to the material that they just watched. Everyone feels things different ways. Yeah, we don't have to argue about it, but we do all get to feel the way we, we feel. And we might change the way we feel when we sit back and reflect on it. Like, I already feel differently today than I did when we recorded the first episode. But not, like, 180 degrees differently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't feel like, oh, actually, no, I liked it, you know. Yeah. But, it, so... It is what it is. The show's going to go on, and we're going to see more of Sansa, and we hopefully will... It's like a Stannis thing. <laughs> I have a Stannis attitude about this. There's no erasing the bad act by making a good act. The rest of the season could be amazing, and I'll appreciate that, and I will call it amazing if it is. It's not going to make this episode, that scene, better, though. It's not going to erase... It's like, oh, well, they've made up for it by doing this. No, they're not going to make up for it. They may, they'll be the column A, which is the good, and column B, which is the bad. Column B is not impacted by what's in column A. The good is the good, the bad is the bad. And they all together, if the show has a lot more good than bad, then it's worth watching. And still, to me, Game of Thrones does have a lot more good than bad. Yeah. But this was a very, this was bad. <laughs> as long as there are scenery shots, I'll keep watching. For me, personally, at least. So, Yoke Boy, we haven't, we've, been, we've been going off for here for a while. <laughs> you got to jump in with your thoughts as well. No, I, I, did, I did last week. I did have a rant because we, we sensed, we, we didn't call it, did we, at all. We, 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 perhaps in a, some kind of denial about it. But I, I, we did sense some 
something with Sansa and I did have a kind of mini rant about how kind of bored I am by a story which just heaps so much punishment onto a innocent girl and you know it feels cowardly and I'm talking like you know aside from the books or anything else you sit down to watch this show and they, they dedicate a large amount of time to showing a girl again and again repeatedly suffering from from Joffrey to Ramsay the two uh, worst you know, characters <laughs> yeah exactly and and I, I, I said that I, I find it I find it you know, on one level, it's boring. Aside from the offence, it's it's boring, and it's it comes across as cowardly. It really does. If that's, I mean, the best thing could happen to Sansa now, but it doesn't really matter because you know they put her through so much. There's no payoff that's going to be worth it. That that's the problem with the Sansa arc, I believe. Okay, having said that, you know, I, I like, like you said, I don't like uh, the fandom turning on itself. I hope everyone's able to have strong opinions, but, you know, respect others and, you know, not fight too much with each other about this. Uh, it's better to have a unified fandom, obviously. Um, as, right, trying to be rational now and be positive, I think it's time, isn't it? As difficult as this was to watch, you know, now we could have an opportunity for Sansa and Theon to come together maybe you know they can come to a mutual understanding remember that uh, before the wedding scene she said i don't care what he does to you before the ceremony and that's how she felt she might feel a bit differently now and they unfortunately might have a common cause and all of the talk of winterfell being a home makes me wonder if the showrunners might not choose a kind of revenge plot over an escape plot but I'm really undecided I'm 50-50 where they'll go but I mean it, it would be nice to have some kind of payback because uh, you know the, there's only so much suffering the audience is going to take you can't it's a one trick pony if you keep punishing the viewer and not paying off yeah one thing we've heard a lot that gets brought up mentioned a lot which is a good point to make is that what happens to Jane Poole in the books is clearly worse than what happened to Sansa in that scene it's not even close and that is a thing that I brought up, wanted to touch on when I brought up this at the beginning of the episode, talking about how our own reaction is really interesting. None of us reacted like this to Jane Poole's treatment that way. But look, emotional investment in a character is a real thing. It's not something you can just cast aside and say, oh, well, that's just because you have an emotional investment. No, that's, a re that's, that's real. You don't just get to set that aside. Emotional investment is a totally legitimate thing and a totally normal thing to have in a character on a TV show or a book or a movie. It, or it is, and it's the, the only... Real life people. It's the only thing in the experience which is real. The characters aren't real. You can do what you like to them, but the relationship between, you know, the audience and the material is the only real thing. So yes. it is value, and it's more valuable than anything. Yeah, I see a lot of people talking about selective outrage and stuff like, why are you getting mad over this and not not this or not that? Well, because you connect more to one character or one plotline or any number of other factors that make this be boiling over point, you know, so yeah. to say. Sansa's a real person. I mean, uh, <laughs> Sophie Turner's a real person, and in real Sophie Turner isn't traumatized by this. But as, as a Sansa the character, we're, we have so much more emotional investment in her than Jane Poole or little like most characters she's one of the characters that people have some people don't like sansa so of course those people don't have a strong emotional investment in her but if you're a sansa fan of course you have a, a strong emotional investment in her and that's that's a real thing that's not something that we can separate like yeah. you said you boy that's 
one of the possibly the most real thing about the experience of fandom. Yeah, I think I personally would have been upset if they kept that they kept this plotline regardless whether they put Jane Poole into it in the show or not just because like I said, I don't think they needed this plotline in the show. But a lot of people do just seem to care more about Sansa and I think that comes down to as you said the the visual element. I think it comes down to the fact that it feels like she was shoehorned into this plotline and that's not what it was in the book so that people feel like she's supposed to be safe and she's not now in the show. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I <laughs> I, I think those are the, the main points, but there, there could be more. Well, uh, you know, it's funny to draw. This is kind of a funny comparison to draw. We, we, I was, in the show only review, I talked about how I was a little deflated by what happened in this episode. But I have to admit, in retrospect, that part of it was that I was already deflated when the scene came because of how disappointed I was in the continuing story of the Sand Snake. So <laughs> I made this, this plot was, this hit me a little harder because I was already a little that, <laughs> deflated. That's a good point. That maybe, I, again, I think that if this hadn't been the final scene of the episode, I think that there are a few things that maybe would have affected some people's reactions. I think it was kind of a amalgamation of a lot like, like you know amalgamation of a lot of different things that came together to make this be a terrible scene yeah okay so we've said what we wanted to say about that i think that we've covered the bases i know some of you have your own thoughts on it feel free to send them our way but we're probably not going to dwell on it a whole lot because like we said it, it's an emotional thing it's not there is less to analyze about it except for analyzing our emotions which i think we've done here and I think that we can all learn something from that. And hopefully we just don't have to see that again <laughs> or anything like it again. So let's let's move oh, on. I I'm, did, sorry. I'm sorry. I did have one thing I wanted to talk about. There's been a lot of misconception. Just by the way, this is a little bit related. It's just, there's been, I've seen a lot of misconceptions about the Daenerys thing in the first season. They depicted her wedding night as a rape. It isn't a rape in the books, but she, make no mistake, she is continually raped in the books, and she is suicidal from it, yes. and they just conflated that in the show. Uh, that's, uh, so, some people are saying they added a rape there, but really they cut out rape, I mean, in that case. Yeah. That's not me defending it in any way, I just wanted to correct that misconception. Drogo is there, their, their, their initial wedding scene is tender, but yeah, after that, he just basically rapes her every night. Let's move on, let's talk about... We're, we've got a lot of great watching our questions and feedback. We're going to get into that and we're going to lead into it with something that we brought, we touched on a bit earlier. We'll talk about, we're going to clarify it and get a bit deeper in the topic of how we are building up to John's death and how we're going to get there and what's going to happen and how people are going to react to it. Not only the characters, but the fandom as well. We, one thing we've done is we've looked for parallels to the pink letter. And for what appears to be likely scenarios, similar parallels to the whole Jon Snow-Bolton conflict. And obviously Sansa marrying Ramsay, as we talked about, might encourage Jon to break his vows, although he's held firm against his vow, breaking his vows so far. This is different. His, it's always, before, it was his own honor that he, didn't, he wasn't going to break his vows because it was him. But when it's somebody else, his own sister, that might have a different impact on him. Watching her, Amy Testo uh, wonders, how will the fandom react to John's death? Is it going to be worse than the Red Wedding? Is it going to be worse than this R Ramsey Sansa situation? Will it be worse than Ned's death? What do you guys think? I think it really just depends on how they play it. Are they going to make it seem like he's for sure dead at the end of the season? I think they'll leave it... I don't think they'll leave it so that people are so sure that John's dead. They they need to make it ambiguous. And they're, they're, you know, they're, they're stupid if they don't do it. I think they're fully aware that... You know, you don't 
do that to a character that at this stage when you've lost so many good characters already you don't do that to Jon Snow you, you do it but to make it so people are talking about it that's the best plan isn't it yeah that, that's a good point yeah so you both touched on similar aspects of that and I, I agree with that so I think we all three of us feel the same way about that uh, so they could they could screw it up if they don't leave it ambiguous I think that will cause massive outcry uh, but people I don't think it will stop people from tuning in next I don't think season. we're going to just see his resurrection at the end of the season oh no I, like, I don't think that'll happen no. this season so uh, that ambiguous yeah now Lincoln watching her Lincoln Naranja uh, wonders well with speaking of the resurrection with Mel nowhere near John she's on campaign with Stannis how will the resurrection be handled we always a lot of us figured that she would be involved somehow I think she'll go back. I mean, one thing I thought of, you know, in the escape scenario, if Sansa escapes, uh, she'll be needed. She'll be needed to take him back to the wall. In, in the books, they make sure fake Arya is with a female. That's true. That's one thought I had. That's a good point. Now, as you said, the there does it, it, there is some indication that John and Melisandre will maybe get together again this season, and that might be the opportunity for that. Uh, maybe he has to. Maybe she goes back to the wall for some reason, like you said, with with Sansa. That would be a good way to make it happen. Now, one thing we'll want to look out for, and with regards to that, is if however ends up happening, John's resurrection in the show, that could end up being a spoiler for how it happens in the books. But it could be way different. I, I wouldn't read into it too much, as we're even though the show hasn't passed the books quite as much as maybe some people thought it would this season. Uh, it does look like season six and seven are going to be where the really major divergences come. This is kind of the tip of the iceberg. Although obviously some plot lines are way different already. The majority of them are are kind of along the same lines and they haven't reached the end of their arc yet. But by the end of this season, that will be where we're at. So that's when we're going to really start to look for things that the show does. Is this a spoiler for the books or not? <laughs> at this point, I would I would really not be looking at the show saying, oh, this is what's going to happen in the books. It's just there's so many pitfalls now with doing that. It's so far off the tracks. And I would say, you know, it's foolish to to do that. Just they make changes all over the place. It just doesn't. The two don't fit. They're different, different animals now. Yeah, they're the spoilers. The, what One thing effect it will have is if you see something happen on the show and it seems like it could happen on the books, it's at least going to be subconsciously in your mind when you're reading, reading the book later. You might be thinking this could be like what happens in the show. It'll be hard to sometimes to avoid that line of thinking. Okay, let's get deeper into the watching her questions. First of all, shout out to Nicholas Van Weidhold, who requested a shout out after sending in a donation. Remember, folks, if you make a PayPal donation through historyofwesteros.com, you can request a shout out, get your name on the show. We do not automatically do that, but if you ask for it, we'll be happy to oblige. We will also send you the next set of, depending on um, how many episodes we put out in the next short while that are non-TV episodes, all PayPal donators are going to get access to the next few episodes early. We typically send them out about five to seven days ahead of releasing them for real. That does not apply to TV show episodes, of course. We put those out as soon as we can. Watchner Jay Wilson wonders if Littlefinger could marry Shireen to Sweet Robin. <laughs> That's a really interesting possibility. If he is, Littlefinger kind of expects Stannis maybe to win, or maybe he expects himself to win. But if he, if Stannis, if things go the wrong way for him, we all know Littlefinger can roll with the punches. If, if things go wrong for him and Stannis comes out on top, that would be a good way for him to, you know, get on the winning side, arrange that marriage. I, I think, think 
if, if things stands fine to Rakan, it makes more sense for him to get a marriage brokered between Rakan and get Rakan firmly under his grasp. That but. does make more sense, but I do, I could see it going either way. I kind of prefer the idea of a Rakan Shireen pairing. But, a lot of people do. But Sweet Robin and and Shireen is a very valid possibility. Bad like for that Shireen. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Remember, Littlefinger must be working on this kind of multiple options where his plans don't work out and he's got plans within plans, under plans, on the side of plans. So, uh, yeah, he's got a kind of uh, eventuality, uh, an idea for every eventuality. So, who knows? Yeah, I bet he's at least thought of this, at least considered. Stannis Baratheon has a, you know, a daughter that is on betrothed. You know, sweet Robin is undeterred. That it has to have crossed. His yeah, mind. I'm sure he's. Yeah, you're right. It's yeah. definitely occurred to him. <laughs> Corky ninety four wonders about Melisandre and the Shadow Babies and how she needed to be inside the walls of Storm's End in order to release a shadow there. Now, how might that apply to Winterfell? Whether there's also some of the same ancient magics present in Winterfell that might keep her from being able to send a shadow baby from the outside. She might need to access this, these tunnels that have been alluded to in order to send her shadow assassins inside Winterfell. That's a very good very good catch there, a very good question. Obviously, we can't know how that's going to play out, but it should be something that they need to account for. So that's an interesting thing to keep in track keep track of. I have one on. thought, um, not on that, but on the previous point um, when we were talking about Rickon. Um, it still baffles me that they had John find out that Bran and Rickon are alive. Because he, he didn't mention it to Stannis, and he knows that. Uh, is he going to mention it to Stannis at any point? I, I, it's like yeah, a, I wonder if that's a, he doesn't want Bran to be involved that way, or it's a plot hole. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was such a short scene, it makes sense for them to have kind of pass them by, I guess, but uh, it seems real important. Uh, anyways. Yeah. Now, Debuda wonders if the Valyria, having Drogon at Valyria and the Slash the Sorrows, will that be, assuming we have Danny flying off on Drogon's back after the pit scene that is coming later this season, will that be where she winds up instead of flying off to the Dothraki Sea? Yeah, well, you had a thought on that, didn't you? Well, all, all I think it, it really comes down to if they want to bring the the Dothraki back into the fold, and you know whether Vase Dothrak is going to be important uh, in, in the TV show. They, you know, they don't do many prophecies, but they did have the stallion that mounts the world prophecy. It, you know, they might want to tie that together. Yeah. yeah, they have done that, but they they cut out all the other Dothraki from her people. We, we don't see them anymore. I have no idea what happened to all of them. Well, they killed off Ricaro because he got a different job. So I don't know if they intended to cut Ricaro yeah. out. So. But they still don't have... Like, she just has no Dothraki with her at all. Right. Um, at this point, and they just... They haven't really made a big deal of, of that. I, yeah. I think it would make a lot of sense for them to cut that out. Although a lot of people would be glad to see more the Dothraki come back in. They were popular. Yeah, well, they I, were. It was weird people, to I mean, people are still of, learning how to speak know. it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> So Aegon Snow, watching her, Aegon Snow wonders if drag can dragons get grayscale, and does that have any merit to the notion of stone dragons? <laughs> and well, yeah, that's a possibility. There's a lot of ways to interpret stone dragon. It could be, you know, the waking of stone. The eggs, Danny's eggs, were fossilized, so that was a waking of stone dragons. In a sense, we could also have 
somebody inflict a, a, somebody a Targaryen type character afflicted with grayscale. Yeah. There's a lot of possibilities there. I don't know though to answer your question. I don't know if stone dra if dragons can get grayscale. I kind of doubt that they can because it seems like a, a mortal affliction and it's a supernatural disease. Dragons are su supernatural creatures and they don't seem to be affected by. I don't. I guess we just don't know. But I like the idea. I like keeping that in the back of my head and, and having that as a possibility. And if anything could affect a dragon, it would be a supernatural disease. That's true. Yeah, grayscale. Turn gray. Are there scales? Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of neat. So, and of course, Garen intended it to have targeted the Valyrians with it. So yeah. maybe he, assuming he really Daenerys did create it. Watch out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, watching her. Dracos asks, uh, with or suggests with Sansa's situation with Ramsay, she might be able to play on his insecurity with the with regards to the succession crisis. She's already witnessed his that that's a bit of an emotional weakness of his that he's he got upset with that whole idea. And this, that is a good observation. It reminds me as well that Roos is not stupid. He is a bit paranoid, and he knows what his son is capable of. And that's yet another reason to be cynical about Roos's you're my son speech. That's just, it was kind of his covering his own ass rather than doing something nice for Ramsey. Basically, he doesn't want Ramsey to murder him. <laughs> He's keeping it. It might be a smart move if, if uh, Sansa starts playing Ramsey off against his father. You know, create actual divide yeah. in the Boltons, further divide. Yeah, I could see that working. I like I, if they don't rush off to war and fight Stannis sooner, then that that becomes a, a possibility. Mm. So, it, it's a possibility anyway. But uh, it's uh, since it's been shown to us, since we've seen Sansa observe that facet of his personality, that's one of the reasons I think it makes it a little more likely because the show has already demonstrated that dynamic. Uh, Billy Davis the third. Would Stannis hang Sansa for marrying Tyrion and Ramsay? Well, I don't think so. He, he would still need a Stark to rally the North, and Stannis, as much as he is a hard-ass about, about being honorable and following the law, he still prioritizes taking the throne over even that. He's pardoned lords for much less crimes when he's needed them. I could see, if he has Rick on, I could see him disposing of Sansa. I would see it more of him, him burning her, because, you know, more power in that... But I don't think it's crazy for Stannis to do that if he had Rickon. But I, I don't think it's likely overall. Yeah, I guess that would really piss off Rickon. Yeah, I mean, Rickon's little enough. He, Rickon didn't know it was happening or something. Yeah. To, I mean, I guess people would tell him. Anyways, I, I don't think it's too super likely, but I, it's within the realm. And I think Stannis is, is likely enough to realize that she was forced into both of these marriages. And Stannis is also, a, his book character... Is, in particular, as someone who doesn't understand women very well and kind of looks down on them, yeah, and that actually might be a, a saving grace because he might that might make him more likely to think of her as a victim. Yeah, yeah, it's true. She she didn't have any part in the planning of it or anything, and he's really true. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's he's right. I... Now, Kevin Moore wonders at the moral ambiguity within the House of Black and White whether there's any gradual corruption going on there, whether and and or. How Arya might fall out with them. Basically, her maybe she goes and gets her own revenge. The killing of Maren Trant could be along those lines. Now, because religion makes us think of, of zealots who don't waver in their beliefs, making them incorruptible, like kind of maybe like maybe like the High Sparrow is being portrayed. But in reality, we all know that priests can be among the most corrupt human beings on this planet. There's lots of examples of priests gone bad. 
and this is George R. R. Martin, who's very well aware of that. He's already shown the proclivity to to write about that sort of thing. So whatever happens with the faceless man, well, we don't we don't know. The kindly man is not Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> he might be. You don't know. You don't know who's under the face. Good point. Pat Morita could be hiding under there uh-huh. this whole time. This is a good good time to re- re- remind people of how, or to revisit the idea of how George R. R. Martin has really busted up the whole young person training montage thing by turning it into something really dark. All the Stark kids are kind of learning and growing and, and getting good at different things, but all of them... I mean, Bran is surrounded by skulls and darkness, and he's bonding with a tree, and he's eaten human flesh at least once. Arya's wearing dead people's faces, going blind, and experiencing their deepest emotional traumas, and murdering people. (laughs) And both are frequently wolves in their sleep Mm -hmm. in the books. And Sansa's lost her wolf, but is now the only Stark in Winterfell. And, of course, her... Training is as bad as it gets. So that's a whole thing there. Uh, watching her, Larry Vieira points out something about the feather on Lyanna's grave. Maybe it's similar to the Catholic tradition of lighting a candle to shorten uh, the soul's time in purgatory. A light feather lifting the soul to the afterlife, that sort of thing. I like it. That works. That, that sounds about right. George certainly likes to... Uh, the faith of the seven has a lot of parallels to not just Catholicism, but other aspects of Christianity and other religions, but obviously that's the one it seems to be the closest to. Watchner Gabriel Raymond points out to something we referenced last time, which was the, the, the obsidian arrowheads. He found our answer, at least the, the closest we can get to an answer on that. I wouldn't say it's a complete answer, but it's the best we have. He points out that Rickon drops the four arrowheads, uh, his four obsidian arrowheads on the ground when the news of of Ned Stark's death arrives by Raven when they're all hanging out in Maester Lewin's tower. And it's a really powerful scene because we already have the foreshadowing that Bran and Rickon have already know that he's dead, even though Lewin's like, no, you just had dreams, you just had dreams. But when the Raven arrives, Maester Lewin stares at the bird as if it's a scorpion. And that's when Rickon starts crying and drops the arrowheads. And and Lewin, so Lewin knows what's coming before he reads it. (laughs) Okay. Iontrone suggests Tommen could be the one to recall Kevin after Cersei is locked up. That would make a lot of sense that he's, you know, hey, my mom's been locked up. I need, you know, I need an adult. (laughs) 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 Uncle Kevin, come get me. I like that idea. That could be how I do expect Kevin to get back in the fold and probably to get killed by either Varus or Littlefinger. Probably Varus. It's shaping up more to be Varus again. We haven't seen him. Yeah, we haven't seen him in so long. (laughs) Uh, Jay Duffy and Mike Rising both make a, an excellent potential observation, which is that Jorah's infected arm could become healed from grayscale, not unlike how Victarion's arm was healed by Makoro in the books by some sort of, you know, shadow bindy mm-hmm. relore magic there. Yeah, possibly by this uh, Rila Fukushima. Yeah, who we talked about how that's an important actress, that she's kind of well-known, and it seems unlikely that she'd just have just that cameo. So that, Easy enough to get her for a show like Game of Thrones. That's but, true. Yeah, we, we, yeah <laughs> that's true. We might have had a very short arc for Mr. Echo, too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, a good observation about Danny's Mother Day speech comes from James Gamet Clark, who points out that it could be her saying she doesn't give up on her children could be a retort to fans who say that she needs to leave Marine and just go to hurry up and get to Westeros. A mother does not give up on her children. And <laughs> she sees a lot of times she's kind of painted as a mother figure to the to the slaves. So... 
and to her dragons, of course, which was the more overt reference in this in that scene. Good catch there. I like that idea. Uh, Washington Matt suggests that. Oh, it's mm. I'm sorry, mm, Matt. There's a lot of M's there. He wants us to remember that his dar bought all the fighting pits up in the books, which is not necessarily what's going on here. It, it, here, it's more about tradition and how the Giscari tradition of fighting pits is important to bonding the cultures together. And the books, Hizdar bought all the fighting pits up when they were closed for a fraction of their previous cost because they were closed and then argued to have them reopened and reaped incredible <laughs> rewards for it. So that is a good, good difference in parallel there. Speaking of Varus again, uh, and Angelica Saunderson sent us an email that got me thinking. Varus has to prove himself to uh, Daenerys too. We know that Tyrion is going to have to have some explaining to do, but so does Varus because Daenerys thinks that Varus tried to have her killed in that wine cellar scene that Jorah saved her from. So he's going to have to win her over too. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Is that Does he have an easy way to, hey, I've been your ally this whole time, or is he going to have, so he might I get fed that, to a dragon. I think that he's <laughs> friends with Illyrio. I think that's his out. Uh, he says, look, I was part of this, you know, Illyrio's, you know, help for you. I, I was what got him to do that or what, what have you, you know. I think just that. You could say hired an incompetent person <laughs> <Yeah>. or something <laughs> on purpose. Now, several people have suggested Littlefinger as the one who sent the Viper necklace. We've guessed at the possibility that it wasn't Cersei or that it wasn't someone in Dorne who sent the necklace. And that it was Cersei, perhaps. That it was Cersei or that it could be Littlefinger that he's just causing chaos somehow. Well, we did at least check. Marcella's not wearing the necklace in the scene in this episode. So that is at least... Some evidence that it was her necklace that was sent back to King's Landing, but worth keeping an eye on. We'll keep. We'll see if anything else develops along those lines. Okay, we are at ready to discuss the trailers, folks. So if you are not interested in hearing us discuss the trailers, this is your time to sign off. I want to thank our Patreon supporters. You can sign up for Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash History of Westeros. And get episodes early, get your name mentioned on the show, and all, all sorts of other great things like that. I do not have my Patreon notes in front of me, so I'm not going to be able to go through the Patreon sponsors today. A little, we're rushing to get this episode ready in time. A little oversight there. You guys know their names. We'll, they'll be in the next episode. So this will be one time where we, we uh, don't get to say everyone's cool names so yeah i love saying those cool names so folks uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next week if you don't want to hear us talk about the trailers if you do stay tuned for the next few minutes while we do exactly that a couple of things we see right away we've got marjorie in prison Looking real haggard. Looking haggard. She's like got Daenerys. a new wig on. Oh. She's yeah. got a, a, her, her, it's her, you know how like Daenerys had her bed wig? This is her prison wig. <laughs> prison wig. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's just, I guess that means Tommen is not going to be quick to the rescue if he's going to rescue her at all. Or if anyone's going to rescue her, she's, she's going to, it's hard to get people out of the face clutches once they have them, once they're in there. Yeah. We, we see, also, we see some scenes from the wall and in the north. We see Alistair Thorne kind of threatening Sam. We see Ollie with a huge frown. <laughs> really so overt with this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know how the, how, I've, I've talked to Sean, our, our, you know, Unsullied reviewer about it, and he's, he seems to sort of see something coming. He obviously hasn't predicted exactly what's coming in the books. Yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, there's not much to say about that. It seems to be you, headed the direction. It seems to be pretty straightforward. Makes me think of when of Jorah finding out what happened to Gior right there. As you know, how they mentioned that in this episode. Oh, you're right. That is a very good Bird call. Foreshadowing. That is true. They brought up the G. What happened to Gior to to foreshadow what's going to happen to John? Very yeah. good call. Very good call. Of course, we see Stannis in the snow talking about how we're gonna, they're going to march to Winterfell. They're going to die trying. That's very much straight from the books. Sansa and Theon, we see them talking to each other. We also and, see Ramsay and Sansa out in the snow. Yeah, which I'm not sure what the deal with that is. Uh, Yoke Boy, did you have any thoughts on how Brienne might get brought back into this plot line possibility? Or do you think we'll see her get involved again soon? No, I... We mentioned about the the Moore's Umber kind yeah. of thing. She's got to do something. That, that, that's the only thing I can think of, unless she's you know she starts to infiltrate Winterfell, which I'm not sure she's set up to do. Maybe she'll light that candle next episode. Sansa, Sansa. will light the candle, and Brienne will come to the rescue, or we'll find out it wasn't Brienne that <laughs> made that suggestion. After all, Brienne's like, "No, I didn't say anything about a candle." That old woman comes. She's like, "Did you need some tea?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all working for the Boltons. Yeah, it's a test. It's yeah. a test. <laughs> Corky94 suggests that Brienne should be after Melisandre for Renly's death, not Stannis. An interesting point. And you wonder if they'll come in contact at all. And if Brienne even know what Brienne even knows about Melisandre. I don't think she's referenced the fact that Melisandre even exists. Yeah, Brienne's not exactly up on the Westerosi gossip circles, you know. Like, she's not exactly getting information. That's true. Yeah, Brienne's really isolated. You can't you, you can't hold a parent responsible for what their child does. <laughs> even if it's even if it's a shadow show. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Watching her, Stephen Curtin suggests that Brienne getting captured by the Boltons would be a parallel to her getting caught by the Brotherhood without banners. It's a very good observation. Miranda could be in on the escape of Sansa, even, is another observation he makes, because she would actually want Sansa gone, and she can't just kill Sansa because it'll be she would obviously be incriminated. Ramsay's gonna if Sansa turns up dead, Ramsay's gonna look at Miranda first, the first person that Miranda she looks at. So. It could, maybe Miranda would see that as a way to be Ramsey's number one again. Like, yeah, I'll help you escape, and then Ramsey's going to hate you and want to kill you. And that that's that fits my plans just fine. So, yeah, I can see that something like that happening. I definitely think that Miranda is, something bad's going to happen to Miranda. And I also am worried about something bad happening to Brienne. But I am a little more optimistic about Brienne, and I don't really care that much about Miranda. <laughs> She's... I think Brienne's going to be fine. I think Brienne, she can take care of herself. We've seen it. I'm not worried about her anymore. <laughs> and she's got Podrick to help, too. Podrick. Nothing goes wrong with Podrick around. No, He'll throw fine. a rock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in, thanks, Yoke Boy, for joining us again today. We'll uh, have you back next week, I'm sure, as long as you're willing to join again. Yeah, really willing to, to join. Thanks for having me on. And if any of you watching us fancy checking out um, my podcast, we're at RadioWesteros.com or on YouTube, we're Radio Westeros channel. So check us out if you feel like it. Definitely do that, folks. And yeah, hopefully next week we'll also have Lady Gwyn, his co-host, on yes. again. Or at least before the end of the season, we'll get her on again. Definitely. I myself probably won't be on the next episode unless there's some crazy amazing scene i'm kind of burnt out talking about the show after that this whole thing eh. right on well, we'll all we'll all rest maybe, up maybe and... there'll be some crazy amazing scene maybe next <laughs> week we see sarah pounds come in to save the day and i'll <laughs> want to talk about it we'll see that would be worthwhile <laughs> 
Now, I prepared for this episode in part by re-listening to some of the key chapters. I used audible.com and listened to the ebooks, particularly Dance with Dragons, but also Feast. I wanted to review Arya's dance chapters, her scenes in the Room of Faces, her scenes with the Kindly Man and the other priests who are basically faceless men. I reviewed Cersei's walk and what it led to it, Marjorie's imprisonment, details about Sir Robert Strong and Kyburn, and that works out great. It's a great way to entertain yourself with Game of Thrones in between podcasts and to keep up with the information, keep track of what's different in the books and show. Go to historyofwesteros.com, click on the Audible trial link. You get a free download. You don't have to pay anything for 30 days, and you can cancel your subscription before you've ever been charged, and you get to keep that free book. Win-win. You might find that it's a great new form of entertainment. You might discover that you love audiobooks, and you might be set for life <laughs> until they invent books that can be put directly into our brain, <laughs> like in The Matrix. You just stick a disc in your head, and you've read the whole book already. Okay, folks, thanks again for tuning in. Keep the feedback coming, and we will see you next week. Valar Morgulis. Mm-hmm.